I would say that there are definitely hard parts about learning React, and it's very possible that it's harder to learn React than it is to learn other frameworks. But I just come back again to, I feel like React is simple, and it's easier to build a simple application with a simple framework than it is to build a simple application with a complicated one. As a side note, I think I probably make up 50% of the traffic on your common mistakes with React testing library. <laughs> <laughs> I think I link to that in almost every pull request that I'm doing. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. What's up, JS Party people? Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? Well, with Raygun Air and Performance Monitoring, you have all the information you need at your fingertips to quickly find and fix errors and performance issues across your tech stack down to the line of code. This saves you time, this saves you money, and this saves your sanity. Head to raygun.com to join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com to give them a try with a free 14-day trial. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Save the date, August 19th is our next live recording of Front End Feud. We'll be pitting two of your favorite web dev podcasts against each other. Can you guess who? Fill out our form at jsparty.fm slash ff so we have enough data and give yourself a chance at a free JS Party t-shirt. Okay, let's do this. It's party time, y'all. What is up, my party people? How are we doing today? Party! <laughs> so exciting. Today we have, I was going to say the infamous Kent C. Dodds, but I realized now after looking it up, that's a really bad thing. So it's more than famous. <laughs> yeah, but not in a good way. So we have the famous yeah. Kent C. Dodds with us here to talk about React tonight. And I am thrilled because when I think React, you're one of the first people that pops into my mind. So welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Well, I'm excited to be here. Just honored to be a part of JS Party. I've definitely listened to this podcast many times, and so uh, really happy to be here. Yeah, great. And we also have Nick Nisi with us today. How are you doing, Nick? Hoi hoi. Ahoy, ahoy. Happy to be here. Hi, Kent. Hello. Well, for those listening, if you're not aware, we do like a live stream with YouTube video, and Nick is wearing an NSYNC shirt, which I love, and Kent <laughs> is wearing a shirt that matches his background perfectly. So... <laughs> Love that for us. But today we're here not to talk about attire. We're here to talk about React, which I'm excited about because I never liked React when I started with it, to be honest. So when I started my front end career, I started with Dojo, which was quite the experience, a little bit scarring for me. And then I moved into Angular, one of the early Angulars. And then I worked with Vue for quite a, a long time and I loved Vue. And when I joined my previous company, logged me in, they were using React with Redux. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to learn this. Like there's so much overhead. And now you could not pay me to leave the React ecosphere. I'm in <laughs> love with it. <laughs> what about y'all? What are your journeys with React? So the first JavaScript conference I ever went to was JSConf 2013, where Facebook introduced React. And so I was in mm -hmm. that room and <laughs> didn't necessarily hear booze, but if you could see booze, that's what it looked like. And uh, <laughs> I looked at my old tweets from back then and I was definitely like, oh, this looks like PHP, gross. I, like, why would you <laughs> combine your model and view together? It's like, yucky. And here I am several years later <laughs> writing React full time. Right. No two-way uh, data binding. This is absurd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll just stick with backbone. Thank you. <laughs> that's literally what was going through my mind at the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's... Um, been a journey. You know, I started off writing a React wrapper around Dojo components <laughs> just to get them to, to run. <laughs> and I didn't really like React back then. And it was mostly like the class-based syntax that I jumped in on and wasn't a big fan of that and like the prop types and setting all of that. It just seemed like a lot of busy work. But that's not how I write React today. And today I really mm. like it. And I'm with you, Emma. I don't want to leave. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah, I certainly don't want to leave either. Really happy with React. So I first heard of React on a podcast that I was listening to while I was driving to the first NGConf, which I think was 2014. 
And yeah, I think Christopher Shadow was on there and Pete Hunt and Jordan Walk. I think all three of them were on there, if I remember correctly. And they were talking about this thing and it sounded interesting. I was pretty fresh in my developer career. I was actually still in school, I think, at the time. And so... You know, I was like, oh, that sounds interesting, but I'm going to an Angular conference. Woo! And so it was a while before I tried it out. And when I did, if you go through my tweets back then, they were just like tweeting a bunch of lines in the docs that were just like really solid general programming principles that they were calling out in the docs. And I was just like, this is great stuff. Like, even if I don't end up using React, like this is really good material. But I actually did try the React. And in the docs at the time, they said, give it five minutes and you'll fall in love. And I did. And I, I just really, really appreciated the simplicity of React. It may not have all the bells and whistles that you get from a framework like Angular. You have to bring more in to make a full application. But it's much easier to build a simple application when you have a simple framework. And so I really appreciated the simplicity of React. And I started working with React finally full-time in at the end of 2015 when I joined PayPal. And yeah, haven't looked back. It's been awesome. Hmm. Yeah, that's really, it's funny that we were all into different like frameworks or libraries at the time. And like I made the switch because I had to. I was actually quite intimidated by React because it was like the hot new thing. And I think to some extent it still kind of is the hot thing, although Vue, I think, is the hot new thing. Or Svelte. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Svelte, yeah. One thing that was really hard for me to understand was the difference between a framework and a library because if you ever want to get clout on Twitter, just tweet out that React is a framework and you will achieve that goal. So what exactly, like, Kent, do you have a, any, like, good explanation or analogies for what the difference is between a framework and a library? Yeah, so, oh, shoot, I'm blanking on his last name. His first name is David. He is a co-host on the Soft Skills podcast. Dave, Dave. Smith, maybe. He's amazing. And we'll link him in the show too. notes. Yeah, but he once told me, or I overheard him talking about this, uh, he said that a library is you calling into the library code. So you're calling library functions. And a framework is that they are calling your code. And I mean, that's probably, there's a lot more nuance than that, but I kind of like that generally. And so technically React is calling our code. We may pass our React components to create element or the JSX function or whatever, but ultimately React is calling our code. And we kind of do both, right? We call, you know, use state and stuff, but I Personally, I consider React to be a framework. And then stuff like Remix or Next.js, I refer to those as meta frameworks. So it's framework mm -hmm. on top of a framework. And people can yell at me all day long about React being a library. I don't care. Um, it's <laughs> a, a really great tool in my tool belt. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it is nuanced for sure. Nick, what were you going to say? Well, I think that a lot of the distinction comes down. And I don't know if it's so much true anymore, but it used to be viewed as just purely the view layer, right? It was just how you're going to render and look at that. But I think with things like more of the state management built in with like the use state hooks and all of those different hooks, it does seem like it's taking over more and more of it. And then of course, there's other things that you bring in. So no React app looks the same unless you're using something like Remix or Next, but mm. there's a lot of flexibility in that. And I think that overall, that's a positive thing. Mm. Well, it can sometimes add overhead too if you're trying sure. to build like a big app and you don't know how to architect it. But yeah, I would take the flexibility. Well, I don't know. I flip-flop. I like rules. <laughs> so I don't know. But I think this begs the question, like why would someone learn React and why would they choose it over another framework or library? Because personally, like I found Vue much more beginner friendly for me. I don't know what it was. And this was several years ago. So now looking at the ecosystem, I would say they're on par with each other because now that we've got React hooks and like the docs are super thorough and all of that, I find React today to be much more approachable than it was back in the day when you had class components and like functional component. The syntax was just like, why? Like, why would you do one over the other? And we'll talk about that in the next segment. But yeah, why would someone learn React over another framework? To jump in there real quick, I think that like in the early days of it and like going back to 2013 when it was introduced, like one of the biggest things that was like a hang up for me was I'm not really writing JavaScript. I'm writing this weird JSX syntax that goes in there. And like initially, for some reason, I had a big problem with that. I don't really know why, but it took until probably like six to five, which became Babel for me to realize that I haven't really written JavaScript in a long time, like straight <laughs> JavaScript. It's all being compiled down to something. And it was okay for me to let go at that time. 
Yeah, actually, it's interesting you say that because I saw all the other frameworks as being even more not writing JavaScript, right? Because you spend mm -hmm. a lot of your time writing template DSLs, a domain-specific language for, for Angular. And one of the things that I was really frustrated about is I spent a lot of time in learning Angular. And very little of what I learned in the Angular world transferred to anything else. And that was really frustrating to me. React has JSX, but I argue that you can learn JSX in a day or less. Hmm. It doesn't take that long to learn the nuances around JSX. And if you learn it the way that I teach it in Epic React in places, I feel like you can see the JavaScript behind the JSX, which makes you a lot more like have a lot more power. Whereas with other frameworks, you're forced into learning their specific syntax, like they need to invent syntax for if statements and different things like that. Whereas with React, it's really just JavaScript once you figure out how JSX converts into JavaScript. None of the other frameworks has that. Like you can't convert their template DSL into JavaScript. That's just not a thing. So really appreciated that about React. And then as far as like why learn React over anything else, I mean, there are other great libraries and frameworks that are awesome. Vue and Svelte have already been mentioned. They're in Angular. They're still Ember and stuff. React, it's really hard to determine popularity of a library, right? You can't look at downloads because there's caching and CI is always downloading. Like, you can't rely on any of that. But I think a pretty reasonable metric, the most reasonable that I can find, is the dev tools. So if somebody has that installed, they're more likely to actually be using it. And if you use that as the metric, then React is twice, or React is more popular than all of the other frameworks combined. So if what you're looking for is a job, then you're certain to find a job with Vue or Svelte, but you're going to have more options and have more choice with React. And then like all of the other things that fall out of being the most popular, having a, a very vibrant community, I've got a lot of thoughts about why the React community is, has so much innovation going on versus the other frameworks. We can talk about that later if you want. But yeah, there's just so much that you get out of React just because it's popular. Now, like whether it's technically better for or technically more suited for different types of projects, that's honestly fairly subjective. I think that most frameworks can handle 99% of the use cases that a typical person has. And so that comes down to a subjective argument. And so, yeah, hopefully I gave a couple more objective mm. reasons. No, that's great. And I think if you look at like ease of learning, the community aspect that's backing it, the fact that, yeah, it's very innovative community, those three things, plus, you know, other factors, I think make this one of the most robust frameworks in the community. And I don't think it's going anywhere. It's only getting better. And to Kent's point, like most job postings, if you look at front end development jobs today, a lot of the newer companies are either already using React or are switching in the process of like migrating their legacy code base to React. So if you're looking for a job, it is definitely like the most sought after framework on the resume. However, like I got my React programming job only having known Vue. So I think if you've got the comparable experience, that's great. The caveat is if you are only focused on learning the framework, make sure that you're not neglecting your foundational JavaScript skills. So Kent mentioned earlier that like one thing he loves about React is that you can still write JavaScript. It feels more like the foundational language, whereas other frameworks might abstract that away a little bit. So ensure that make sure that when you are interviewing for jobs that you are comfortable writing your plain JavaScript because they shouldn't test you on your knowledge of React. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, actually on that job note, when I was at PayPal, interviewing people like a couple times a week, I felt like. What I typically would try to do is get them really comfortable and, and help them or ask them what they're really good at. Have them tell me, okay, so what's the thing that you're very best at? And then I would ask them questions about that thing. And often it was, I'm really good at React. And so I did ask quite a few questions about React because that's what they told me they were really good at. And my reasoning there was, if you say that this is the thing you're best at, then show me how good you are at it. And mm. I'll have a pretty good understanding of where you're at technically. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's what we should be doing as interviewers is playing to their 
strengths because their weaknesses can be nurtured and learned over time. Yeah. So if somebody said, well, I'm, I'm not super great at React, but I'm super good at Vue. Nobody actually said that. I never had anybody <laughs> do that. But what I would do is I would ask them, okay, show me how to build this in Vue. It just gives me a better idea of when they say, I'm really good at this, what does that mean <laughs> is what I'm looking yeah. for. I remember having a conversation with Dan Abramov briefly, like when I was in London for my first conference and he was saying that he interviews, he did interview for the Facebook React core team and he did not ask React questions when he was interviewing for the React core team. And that just goes to show that like, I feel like in your case, Kent, like that was done very well where you were like, okay, what are you good at? What do you enjoy? And you played to that. But yeah, like most employers should not be testing you on framework specific knowledge, because again, a lot of it is also proprietary architecture. Like mm. at least with mm -hmm. React apps, like you can know React, but when you come into these enterprise applications, it can be very like jarring to see it in like an enterprise code base. And yeah, I mean, I would rather have a candidate who is great at foundational, like they understand scope, they understand asynchronous JavaScript, things of that nature. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it seems like with React, modern React at least, it is kind of shying away from a lot of those quote-unquote tougher parts of it. And I'm specifically talking about like classes, right? It kind of went away from that and you don't have to worry about context nearly as much. Scope is still a big deal, obviously. And then just understanding the flow of like, you know, this function, this component function is going to get called over and over and over again. But I was going to ask, Kent, why you thought that React is so good at teaching the fundamentals of, or inspiring the use of fundamental JavaScript. When that comes to my mind, it's things like using map inside of your React or your JSX to, you know, map out, turn a property into a component mm -hmm. and from there, and then like things like ternaries for the same or type Or array destructuring out of state. Like that was oh, the yeah. first time I'd seen array destructuring use. I was like, what the heck is this syntax? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that because JSX is converted directly to react.createElement or the JSX function now. And you can actually call that and get a return value. And that return value is interpretable. Like you understand what that is. It's called a fiber. They're just React elements that, or UI descriptors, I think is what I've called it before too. But like that alone makes it so much more approachable to me because I'm literally just dealing with objects. I'm creating mm -hmm. a bunch of objects and I'm returning those objects in my functions. That's all it is. A React component is a function that returns a React element, which is an object. And like, it can't get simpler than that. I, I really like that. Now we could talk about use effect and item potent and all of these other things that can make React a little bit more tricky. But once you have the right mental model, then it is less tricky. And what I've found is that for some of those things, they're really low-level primitives upon which we can build really powerful abstractions, and we just use the abstraction. So most of my code, actually, my production code, doesn't use use effect very often. I'm using other abstractions that are doing that for me, which is, I think, the way that it's supposed to be. When Dan introduced it, he said that hooks were atom, or were uh, the elements within an atom. And you don't typically interact with you know protons and electrons. You interact with the entire atom. And so I, I found that React to be really simple because it allows me to simply abstract away shared code, use that shared code, and then just return objects. And when we're interacting with objects, it's, it becomes a simple matter of, I've got an array of things. I'm going to turn this array of strings or whatever it is into an array of objects. And that's something that, that anybody who's done JavaScript for a while should be able to do. Or if they can't do it now, then they can learn it. And then they'll know it. And that's what's cool about React is the better I get at React, the better I get at JavaScript and vice versa. And that was not true when I was working with Angular. The better I got at Angular, I might get better at JavaScript in some, you know, depending on what I was doing, but mostly I was just getting better at Angular. And that was frustrating when I moved on from Angular to React. Was all that stuff that I'd learned is just, it's gone. And I can't even remember it now. So it literally is gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of curious. When y'all were learning, did you encounter anything that was really difficult for you to wrap your mind around? Because, like, I had been coding React for a year and a half, two years by the time hooks came out. And I remember some of these hooks just threw me for a loop. Like I'm trying to think, use context was very confusing to me. If, like if you don't work in enterprise applications or like very large scale data-driven apps, like you don't really come into, you know, this hook, like 
often, or I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, like use memo and use effect. Like all of these were just really difficult. Use state was basically the only one that I was like, oh, I know what it does. <laughs> I think that a big part of that is just the naming of it. Like they're using, I don't know for sure, but I assume that it's more like computer science-y terms, right? For effect and context and things like that. And, you know, when I see use effect, like when I first saw that, I was like, wow, what effect is this having? Like it, it seems so grandiose and it just seemed like it was really tough to get my head around it because of the terminology. But like, it's actually really is pretty simple once you really think about that. Yeah, you know, I can actually tell you so when I was first learning React, we didn't even have classes. It was create class and all that. And I think this same for both of you. And so like coming into hooks, it took me a little bit of time to be like, okay, yeah, this is kind of interesting. And then a little time as in like minutes of like, initially I was like, I'm not sure about this. And oh my gosh, I love this. And uh, the biggest thing for me was getting rid of class components and shareability of code. Because with class components, we always talk about the separation of concerns and how important that is in you know maintainable architecture. And one of the things I loved about React was that it embraced the fact that HTML, CSS, and JavaScript are part of a single concern. Those aren't separate concerns, those are separate technologies when combined to create a single concern of your button component or your accordion or whatever it is. And so, but within that individual component, there could be multiple concerns in there. You know, one part of it is updating the document title to say how many unread messages you have. And the other one is subscribing to Firebase to get those messages. And it's spread between these life cycles. And so with hooks, I was able to keep those concerns together within the component. And if it was a reusable bit, then it's just a matter of pulling that out and sticking it into a function is it like, mm. it's just JavaScript at that point. Like you're just moving yeah. stuff around, like just like you do with JavaScript. So anyway, I, I didn't have a huge problem with jumping into hooks, but I know a lot of people switching from classes to hooks was, was a bit of a big jump. But one other thing that I just wanted to mention too, like some of the hard parts of learning React, I can tell you based on the number of people who are reading my blog posts, what are the things people have the most trouble with? <laughs> Because <laughs> I don't like track Google Analytics on my blog, but I do have Netlify Analytics, and that gets when people land on my blog. And the number one blog post right now over the last month is how to use React context effectively. So that, Emma, speaks to you. And then uh, oh. use memo and use callback are the next. And that, that one mm. actually has been really popular and for years. That Yeah, those two are tricky. They're absolutely yeah. tricky. And then I've got a couple things about testing and state management is another thing that people struggle with quite a bit. And then use effect and use layout effects are pretty big ones too. So yeah. yeah, it's. I would say that there are definitely hard parts about learning React. And it's very possible that it's harder to learn React than it is to learn other frameworks. But I just come back again to, I feel like React is simple. And it's easier to build a simple application with a simple framework than it is to build you know, a simple application with a complicated mm -hmm. one. As a side note, I think I probably make up 50% of the traffic on your common mistakes with React <laughs> testing library. <laughs> I think I link to that in almost every pull request that I'm doing. Yeah, we're using yeah. React testing library too. And I'm like, oh, got to go see Kent again. Yeah, actually, Nick, <laughs> I thought about this the other day. If other people find themselves in this situation where they're linking to my blog posts on pull requests, a good way to stop doing that is to talk to your manager about getting your team license to epicreact.dev. So everybody can go through that and you're all on the same page and then you have you don't have to link to the blog post all the time. Absolutely. Indeed. There's a little self plug. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to link Kent's course in the notes and we'll talk about it a little bit at the end as well. But we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the core React concepts and learn a little bit more about the difference between hooks and class components. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Micro. Micro, aka M3O, is a new cloud platform built for developers by developers. Our good friend Asim Aslam is leading this. And if you're tired of AWS and feeling overwhelmed by the cloud, infinite billing, and an endless sea of docs, it is time for a change. The Micro team is reimagining the cloud for the next generation. M3O is a new developer-friendly platform to explore, search, and use simpler APIs for everyday consumption. All 
all in one place. Get access to the APIs you need in one click and test them right there on the web before using them. Simple, fast, and affordable. You won't get burned by bottomless billing. You top up your account and pay as you go. And right now, they're in early development and building out the first set of APIs, and they're looking for feedback from developers. Sign up and get $5 in free credits. Kick the tires, give them your input, so they can build the best APIs you want to use every single day. Learn more at m3o.com. Again, m3o.com. Okay, so we talked quite a bit about hooks in the first segment, but I want to talk a little bit about hooks versus class components, because when I was learning React, it was very much about class components. And my biggest question is, what benefits do hooks have over class components? And should newcomers to React even bother learning class components anymore? Hmm. Those are loaded questions, and I know that. I have really strong opinions about this, but I'll wait till <laughs> Nick shares his. I'm trying to think, like... From my own personal standpoint, I would rather work on projects that are completely using functional components and hooks. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think if there is an actual like valid reason to use class base. Kent, you probably would know more. Yeah. Okay. So ready for this? <laughs> here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually have a talk you can find on my talks webpage that explains why React hooks are so useful and like what the benefits of hooks over class components are. And I'll just mention really quickly. So first is the JavaScript classes have a number of challenges with them, especially when we're talking about React. And so, yeah, I explain a couple of the gotchas when you're working with... I remember when I was teaching React with class components, the first half of the workshop was teaching about classes and the, the nuances there. And so... It's great we don't have to worry about classes. The other thing is life cycles, having to, like, we're just, the mental model for thinking about the life cycle of a component, I think, is wrong. And then logic reuse. And we had render props and higher order components, and each one of those had problems with those. So we've eliminated those problems by using hooks. And, like, code reuse, for me, is the biggest one. I love being able to say, oh, this is a really interesting set of hooks that I'm using here. I want to use that over here. And I literally just make a function out of it. And that's it. Like it, it's uh, Sometimes it can be a little bit more challenging when we're talking about different variables that need to be in scope and stuff like that. But most of the time, it's a pretty simple refactor. So anyway, then on the, like, should you bother to learn class components? About every six months, I will tweet a poll to ask people what percentage of your code base or sorry, what percentage of your time is spent working with hooks versus classes? Just as I predicted, over time, it's more and more and more on like 0% working with classes. I'm just spending all my time with hooks. It, it's been almost three years since hooks was announced. So like, this is not a surprise. And so as soon as hooks was released officially, I completely stopped teaching classes. I haven't taught anybody how to use a React class component for two and a half years now. And that has proved to work out really nicely. The thing is that if you really get into a code base where all of a sudden now you need to use a class, then great, go look up like the bajillion articles about how to write class components with React. I've got a course on Egghead that's it's still available. It's the original beginner's guide to React. And you can learn everything you need to know about writing class components. Or you can watch my other course on Egghead that shows you how to refactor a class component to function component with hooks, which is what you should be doing whenever you run into a class component anyway. And yeah, so I suggest learn on demand when you need to learn it, then go ahead and learn it. The only thing that you can't do with hooks that you can do with classes is error boundaries. And mm. I wouldn't bother writing one of those anyway because it's on NPM, it's called React mm. Error Boundary. And I'm the maintainer of that actually. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> I do write <laughs> class components, but like that's literally the only one that you need in your app. You don't need class components at all. It seems like we chose the right person to bring on and talk about React today. <laughs> I have opinions, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's good because it's helpful to inform newcomers' opinions when we have someone who's worked so intimately with React and sharing. And actually, I fully agree with your explanation. It's basically like you will likely encounter class components if you're working in a quote-unquote legacy React code base, so like something older than three years. But unless you're doing that, you really don't need it. So yeah, that was a really great explanation. One 
thing that really tripped me up was this paradigm of what a hook actually is when I first joined. And I remember I got to read like the hook specification before it was published and I read through it and I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. Sounds nice. And I didn't fully understand like the impact this was going to have. But if you were to try to explain what a hook is exactly, I know like there are a bunch of different ones that do different things, but what exactly is a hook? So I've got just the best resource for people who want to get a deep answer to this question. And it is from Sean Wang, also known as Swix. Mm. He has a blog post and a talk titled Getting Closure on React Hooks, where he builds React Hooks from scratch. He builds a use state hook. It's phenomenal. It's a really great resource. I would write it, except he already did. So I won't even bother because it's just that good. So I would recommend going into that. It's difficult to describe what he does in an mm. audio format. So I, I don't think I'll try, <laughs> but <laughs> basically, yeah, I guess I will try it. React keeps <laughs> a record of every time you call a React hook. And so when it's rendering your function component, because your function component is synchronous, it can do a little bit of setup work before calling your function. It'll call your function and then do some work after. So it knows what hooks you called when it called your function. And it just keeps track of those. And every time it calls your function again, it's going to give you the right return values based on the hooks that were called. This comes with a couple of trade-offs, which is where the rules of hooks come from. You can't conditionally call hooks and stuff like that because it needs to be able to track those. But anyway, if you want to dive a little deeper into that, Swix's blog post about this and talk are just phenomenal. And I'd recommend people look at that. Absolutely. All of this is going to be, this is going to be the largest show notes we ever <laughs> create. I love it. One question that I still see to this day is, does use state or do hooks replace Redux? Especially because there's a use reducer hook and it's like, okay, do I even need Redux anymore? Because I know we're personally at, at Spotify, we're in the process of ripping out Redux. That's what I was doing today. I was replacing Redux with hooks today. But can we fully replace Redux with hooks? This is a question I have too, because we <laughs> we don't use Redux, but I've used the use reducer hook minimally. And from that little bit of time that I've spent with it, it does seem like it. But I'd love to know your thoughts. Yeah, on I've, I've got lots of opinions on this too. So let's hear it. <laughs> I never liked Redux. I, I tried it once and, and I used it in a production application at, at PayPal. And what I found was when I was working with Redux, I spent so much time switching tabs to different files. I had like 30 <laughs> files open when editing any any single feature. Now there is the Redux toolkit, which is a drastically improved situation and things with Redux have improved even with hooks. There are some nice hooks there, although you miss out on some of the optimization that Redux does for you, performance optimizations when you use those hooks until we get the use mutable, what is it? Use mutable source, if that's what it ends up being called. But uh, yeah, so we're kind of, or I think there's actually use context selector or something. That one's going to be huge. That'll be awesome when we get something like that. So there are some performance optimizations you miss out on if you're using the Redux hooks right now. But yeah, I just didn't like having to open so many files to do anything. And it's not just like the, oh, this is annoying. I have to open so many files. It's the context switching and it's the, I'm touching code that is totally unrelated to the feature that I'm working on. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. dangerous. Anytime you do that, ask anybody who's done like regular old CSS and they'll tell you that I don't know if it's okay for me to change this. So I'm going to mm -hmm. duplicate it. And now we've got at, at PayPal, this is not made up. We had 90% unused CSS on the project I was using mm -hmm. because everybody was afraid to touch the old stuff. So we just duplicate something new and call it something else. And you might just say that we're bad at CSS, but maybe CSS was bad at us. I don't know. Like, <laughs> just, <laughs> Well, that's like, why it styled components and CSS and JS was so pivotal was like, mm -hmm. oh, hey, we can actually encapsulate all of this logic inside the component that it's touching and don't have to worry about, you know, bleeding like code anymore. And it's so much easier to delete things and add things and all of those Things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're precisely right. Like that, that was the problem that those things were made to solve. And I, I'd love to talk about how Remix changes the game with CSS and JS. I don't use CSS and JS anymore because of Remix, because oh. there's some really interesting things that Remix does to make it. I don't even know what that is, to be honest. Yeah, well, let's talk about it. Let's yeah, give us a Sparknotes sure. edition. Because it, it is great. But yeah, you're absolutely right. 
and that's one of the things that I loved about React was like, okay, so what is the concern? The concern is the component, and a component isn't complete without all three JavaScript, HTML, and CSS. And CSS and JS made that possible. And the problem with Redux in that vein is it wasn't Redux by itself. In fact, I have a blog post on the epicreact.dev slash articles page that is my state management mistake. And so at PayPal, I switched over to another project. It was a brand new, fresh project. And we decided to go with a different state management library solution because I didn't like Redux at all. It wasn't like a unilateral decision. We all kind of decided. And so we ended up in pretty much just the same hairy mess. And ultimately, the problem wasn't Redux, it was storing so much of our state globally and also treating our server cache the same that as we treat our UI state. And mixing those two concepts just made things really difficult. And you end up having to uh, make changes to files that are like far away from what you're actually working on, and you could end up breaking something else inadvertently. And so this is why I'm so excited about React Query. Although again, Remix kind of eliminates this problem as well. And so I don't need to use React Query with when I'm using Remix. But if I'm not using Remix, I'm absolutely going to be using React Query because it takes all of my server cache stuff, puts it in a really nice abstraction. And then all I have left is UI state. And I don't need Redux for that. It's I co-locate it with use state, I'll pass props a couple levels. I'll compose things properly so I don't have to pass props a couple levels. Or if it really just becomes a bit of a pain to pass things around, then I reach for context. And context is good enough that I don't need all the extra bells and whistles that Redux has to offer. Mm. I'm right there with you. Indeed. I found Redux pretty confusing to learn. Mm. I really like React Query. It's made state management simpler like in just the way that I'm thinking about it. And as a little plug for us, uh, we did talk to Tanner Lindsley about React Query on episode 179. So we'll have that in the show notes. I listened to that one. It was great. Nice. So, okay, we've talked about hooks like theoretically, but let's just quickly go through what some of these are because, you know, we might have some new listeners and I think it's really beneficial to just kind of run through what a few of these do, the ones that you're going to see the most often. In my opinion, use state is probably the one that's used the most often. The syntax for this, again, was very confusing to me when I first saw it because I had not seen array destructuring in like a proper, like practical way. So you'll see like const and then you've got two square brackets and inside you've got two variable names most likely. Do you always need to put the setter and the uh, variable, like the state variable? You need both, right? Yeah, if you yeah. want to have a value that you can change, then yeah. you get the value and then the way to change it. And yeah. it is, there are use cases for getting a value that you can't change mm. just so that you keep that stable initial value. But yeah, mm. most of the time you'll want both. Right. Okay, cool. So yeah, so usually you've got the first variable and that's the square brackets is going to be the, the piece of state. So let's say we've got color. Let's say we're like building a t-shirt application and we need to keep track of the color options that are available, like the, the selected color that the customer is currently looking at. So we've got color and then the updater function is set color. That's kind of like the, I don't think it's a rule, but it's like the, convention. what's the word I'm looking? Convention. Exactly. The convention is named set and then whenever like the state variable is called. And then you've got this equals use state. And inside the parentheses, you've got your default state value for that. So maybe we want to default to a color of blue or a string of blue. So yeah, this just keeps track of the state for different pieces, whether that's like your sidebar is expanded or collapsed, or um, your modal is visible or hidden, things of that nature. What about use effect? We had mentioned this earlier, but why, why would you use use effect? Well, I think Nick mentioned earlier that uh, use effect was a confusing name, and I tend to agree. the The challenge is a better name might be use side effect, mm. and so it's they just saved us four characters every time we use this, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, use effect basically. I found that in teaching people React with hooks, the people who had the most trouble were the ones who'd actually used React with class components before. Because they looked at use effect and they said, oh, here's component did mount and component did update mm. and component will unmount. And then all of the code that you had in those life cycles is the code that you're going to put into use effect. But the mental model for it is completely different. 
And so with hooks, instead of thinking about life cycles and when this component mounts or unmounts, in fact, you shouldn't even think about mounting or unmounting when you're working with React and with hooks. What you should be thinking about is with use effect, the objective is I've got some state inside of my application, some like, you know, the modal is open or whatever it is. And then I've got some state in the rest of the world that's not in my application. I've got a database, I've got local storage, I've got the document title. This state lives outside of your application. And so if we are looking at a list of messages or how many shirts you have in your cart, and you want to update the document title to say how many you've got in the cart, then that document title is outside of your application. That's a different thing. And so to keep that thing up to date, that is a side effect to update that value imperatively. You say document title equals whatever you want it to be. And so to, if you update your UI state that's managed by React, but you don't update the document title, then you're out of sync. And so you end up with the stale state of the world. And so useEffect's job is to synchronize the state of the world with the state of your application. That's all that it does. It's the entire objective of useEffect is to synchronize the state of the world with the state of your application. If you enter a chat room, the state of the world is off because you're not subscribed to the messages from that chat room. So you're going to use useEffect to subscribe to those messages. And as a message comes in, you can update the state you know, to synchronize the state of your app back with the state of the rest of the world. So that's the job is to just keep things in sync between your app and the rest of the world, everything outside your app. Have you ever considered making a React course? Because you seem like a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very nice of you. That was a really beautiful explanation. Like I never thought about it like that. And actually, sorry to interrupt you. No, this is why the dependency array is so important. And so I, I think it's important to talk about that. So by default, use effect is going to rerun every time the component is re-rendered, which is good, right? Because let's say that we're updating the document title. All we care about is how many shirts are in the cart. And so we don't need it to rerun every time you know the user opens and closes this moment or something, but it's not bad to have it rerun and update the document title to just the same thing, right? It's not incorrect to do that. So I'm glad that that's the default. But there are other things that we do, like make requests and stuff that would probably not be a good thing to do unnecessarily. And so we have this dependency array. And so when we're talking about synchronizing the state of the world to the state of our app, we need to tell React what are the things that, if changed, will cause this to be out of sync. Okay, so th that would be the shirt count or the number of shirts in our cart. And so that's what we put in the dependency array. And if we say, oh, you know what? I only care about this happening on mount or something like that. And you put your open and close brackets as the dependency array there, like that's fine. You'll have to ignore the ESLint rule, which you probably should have enabled on your project. You'll have to do that. But I always say doing that is turning on bug mode in your application because you are absolutely going to run into bugs by doing that. Because you're effectively telling React, there's no way for the state of the world to fall out of sync with the state of the app. So don't bother running this again, where that's actually not the case. That's beautiful. I love that. Wonderful. Well, Nick, did you have something to add to that? Sorry. Uh, yeah, kind of going on a little bit of a, an aside on hooks. I have an architectural question for you, Kent. Sure. When it comes to hooks and like setting all of this up, do you tend to just have like a bunch of like use effects and or maybe you said you don't use that too much, but like have a lot of hook calls in your component or do you try and abstract those into a custom hook and then just call that? Yeah, I, I'm so glad you asked this question. I see React components as very like basically exactly the same as I see regular functions. So whether I'm writing React code or just like some server node stuff or a CLI or whatever, it's all the same to me. And so in general, I have this blog post called AHA Programming, which Cher Scarlett came up with that acronym. It's really great. It's avoid hasty abstractions, where the idea is you want to avoid abstracting things too early because the tendency is to add to an existing abstraction and reuse it. And then that abstraction just gets really complicated, where it would have been easier just to duplicate or maybe have multiple abstractions. So anyway, I tend to try to co-locate as much as I can, and I'll just put, I'll stuff as much as I can stand in a component. People come up with all these rules about, you know, if the component's 100 lines long or whatever, then, then break it out. I actually have another blog post about when to break up a component into multiple components. Just because a component is 100 lines long does not mean it needs to be broken out. It doesn't mean that it's complicated at all. What complicates things is when you have lots of mixed concerns, and that can make things more complicated. 
complicated. So when I start getting into that sort of area, that's when I'll start thinking about, okay, let's make a hook out of this. Or sometimes I'll just like stick a comment above this section of hooks and say, this section of hooks is doing this. Because the fact is, as soon as you move code into another function, you instantly increase the complexity of that. Mm -hmm. Like that's just the way that that works. And so you want to avoid doing that by just putting things in line. So I, I am super opposed to just arbitrarily moving the raw hooks into custom hooks because you end up making things more complex just by default by doing that. But I'm not opposed to making custom hooks, even if they're not reused. It just kind of depends on how complex that component is getting just by nature of various concerns that are mixed. <laughs> nice. Great answer. So, I agree with that. Yeah, that's awesome. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this custom hook conversation to learn a little bit more about why you would create a custom hook and how you do so. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. For our listeners out there building applications with Square, if you haven't yet, you need to check out their API Explorer. It's an interactive interface you can use to build, view, and send HTTP requests that call Square APIs. API Explorer lets you test your requests using actual sandbox or production resources inside your account, such as customers, orders, and catalog objects. You can use the API Explorer to quickly populate sandbox or production resources in your account. Then you can interact with those new resources inside the seller dashboard. For example, if you use API Explorer to create a customer in your production or sandbox environment, the customer is displayed in the production or sandbox seller dashboard. This tool is so powerful and will likely become your best friend when interacting with, testing, or playing with your applications inside Square. Check the show notes for links to the docs, the API Explorer, and the developer account signup page, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to jump right in. Again, check for links in the show notes or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to play right now. break, we were talking about custom hooks. I want to ask you, Kent, why would you create, like, what is a custom hook? And what kinds of things work well for custom hooks? So like I said, this is one of the things I loved about hooks when they were introduced was um, custom hooks. A custom hook is, this is the definition. It's a function that calls another hook. That's it. That's what a custom hook is. So the hook that it calls could either be a react.use state or it could be another hook like use query or something like that. So it doesn't matter what kind of hook it is, whether it's a custom hook or a built-in one, but it's actually like, it's very analogous to a custom component. A function component is just a function that returns a react element. Custom hook is a function that calls other hooks and that's it. So why would you create one? The biggest and most important use case is for code reuse. So let's say that you wanted to synchronize the document title, then that's going to be a use effect. And the use effect will have a dependency on whatever you want the title to be. And then inside of the use effect, you'll say document title equals whatever that value should be. So that's a pretty simple thing. I probably wouldn't bother abstracting that one, but for our purposes, we'll say we want to reuse this in another part of our code base. So we're going to just literally make a function called use update document title. It accepts a single parameter that is what the title should be, that is a string. And then you move your use effect into that function. You don't have to even return anything. And then you call that function inside of its original place and you pass what the title should be. And now you can reuse that all over the place and update the title willy-nilly however you want. And that's what primary use case for hooks. And the, the really cool thing about this is because it's a pretty low level primitive, it works really, really well. And so I think the best example of custom hooks actually comes from Tanner Lindsley. He has just phenomenal libraries that use custom hooks. His React Virtual and React Table 
and React Query, all of these things just do a really great job of abstracting things away into a custom hook that you simply call in your function component. And sometimes you'll get stuff back. And yeah, it's really powerful. And actually, Tanner has a, a talk that he gave at JS Hawaii um, that, uh, that did a really good job of explaining the power of custom hooks, too, that I recommend people go look. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, at Spotify, we have a ton of custom hooks because we have got a huge application, but one of them is about using the color extraction. So if you ever create a playlist, you'll know that the entity header, the playlist header, the color changes depending upon like if you have custom artwork uh, for your playlist title, or if you've got, um, if you just have like four songs, it'll do like a mosaic of four and it'll abstract the colors out or extract them out. And so we've got a custom hook to do that, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned before, like use the use convention. So that is like one of the conventions of custom hook is it has to be called like use something, right? Yeah, yeah. And that convention is important because the React Uslint plugin will relies on that convention to do some of its rules of hooks checking and stuff. But the convention doesn't matter. And you literally can call it anything because remember all the is happening is React sets up some stuff before it calls your function, then it calls your function, which is synchronous. So all of the, you know, whether it's custom hooks or not, they're all gonna get called at that time. And then it knows which hooks were called. So that's why this works. That's why it's so brilliant is because mm -hmm. like, it doesn't matter how deep in the call stack the JavaScript has to go to call those hooks. Eventually they're all called so React can keep track of them. And that's why it works to just like, oh, I want to make this custom. I'll just literally do the same thing that I do in any other JavaScript when I want to reuse code. And I just, I love that. That part of React Hooks is just brilliant. And talking about the use prefix on there, I just love that this is like a perfect example of like custom ESLint rules. And like, they are super helpful because as soon as it can find a function that you're calling that starts with use, it knows that it's a hook and it will make sure that you're not conditionally calling it if you have these ESLint rules set up. And like, if you're using a use effect, it'll tell you exactly what you need to pass in to the second argument in the array to make sure that it's, it's set up properly. Like it's just a fantastic use ESLint in that custom way. Yeah, they honestly, like, they, they nailed it, too, because mm -hmm. they were so lucky that that wasn't already a, a convention for something else. Like, we <laughs> never call our functions use whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, that they lucked out. And, and it, honestly, it makes sense to me mm -hmm. that that would be the convention. So, yeah, it's cool. That's awesome. Um, I would like to switch gears, if that's cool with you all, and talk about something that is either going to excite people or make them cry. And that is React with TypeScript. Woo, so, I'm excited. Woo. Yeah, I was definitely a slow onboarder to TypeScript because I was so scarred by Java, which is a strongly typed language. And I was like, I love that JavaScript's flexible, but I would spend hours trying to debug these issues that I could only find at like, you know, what is it, compile time, runtime, whatever. React with TypeScript. Should I use TypeScript with React? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I've used it. Well, we use it at Spotify, we use it at my previous company as well. And it just saves your butt if you have large applications that deal with, or like very complex object structures. Like think about, like, let's just take an example of like a Spotify playlist. You've got a list of songs. Every song has an artist, it has a duration, it has an album. It links to these different artist pages. It can feature people, you know, playlists have names and custom cover art. And the shape of these objects are so intensely complex that it's super easy to forget different pieces of, you know, what's required when using them. And so TypeScript has saved my butt so many times with creating this, the shape of these different objects. You know, it has auto completion and it helps me avoid a lot of bugs that otherwise I would spend hours looking for the solution to mm -hmm. kind of going back to class-based or like, I don't know if it's exactly class-based react, but when I first got into react, one thing that I found super annoying was I was creating my class and I think I had like a static props property on there that was everything listed out. And then I had all of that duplicated again in a prop types. And that was just so much code for not very much. And then you know, a simple TypeScript interface kind of replaced it all. And it's, of course, not doing any runtime type checking, but it's really good enough for what we need. Yeah, if you want runtime type checking, then that's what we had with prop types, right? And mm -hmm. so people will often ask me, like, what's the 
you know, does TypeScript replace prop types? And most of the time, people will just say yes. But there is nuance to that, right? With prop types, you did get runtime type checking. But with prop types, you had to run the code to get the warning. Whereas with TypeScript, you don't have to run the code at all. You can just get the warning right in your editor. So I think it's a fair trade as long as you do a good job of typing at the edges, you know, where you're reading things from local storage or, or getting things from the API. As long as you're confident with those typings, then you're just way better off with TypeScript. And I used FlowType before using TypeScript. We were on Flow at PayPal, and then we migrated to TypeScript. Yeah, like using a typed language or type checking is I wouldn't do it any other way. <laughs> it's just phenomenally better. I also just want to give props to the TypeScript team for so quickly jumping on and supporting things like JSX with mm -hmm. TypeScript. And they even changed like the casting. It used to be like the, mm. the open angle brackets for casting. And now you can do as whatever. Like th that was mm -hmm. just immediate so that you wouldn't get confusing like bracket syntax inside of your JSX. Right. I liked that sneaky little like... Uh, pun. You want to give props to the, the team. <laughs> <laughs> Cute. Totally intentional. I know. Dad joke radar has gone off. <laughs> but I will say, like, if you are new to the React ecosystem and you're learning to get a job or whatnot, I would recommend not learning TypeScript right away. I think it's a mm. lot of overhead to learn at once. I think prop types is a really, really great introduction to a strongly typed version of React without all the nuance of learning union and intersection and like all these other really complex TypeScript concepts that are definitely more, I would say, I don't know what the right term is. They remind me more of Java or like other like strongly typed languages than prop types. Prop types is definitely a nicer introduction to that concept. So I'm going to switch gears once more because we're kind of nearing the end of the show, but I wanted to come back to something that you said, Kent, which was that you feel the React community is the most innovative. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I definitely have thoughts on this. And I don't know, they could be controversial. But the way that I see it is React choosing to be a very specific slice of our stack ended up forcing the React community to be innovative. And I'll explain what I mean. So if we're in the Angular, I'm not going to speak for Vue because I was never a part of that community. But I was a part of the Angular community. And I can say that if somebody came up with a really neat animation, sorry, let me say that differently. They have an animation library built in. They also have an HTTP library. And like so many things are just built into the framework, which is great. It means that I can install it and I have all the tools at my disposal to use for these different things that I need to do. But if those things don't satisfy my use case properly, or maybe I don't like the API, or it just isn't doesn't fit into what I'm trying to accomplish, which always happens. We've all experienced this. We're using an abstraction and it's not quite working for what we want. So you have a couple of choices when you hit that. You're either going to work around it and just like do some sort of weird workaround to make that work, or you're going to maybe file an issue and ask for somebody to fix this or change it and potentially even make a pull request. You could potentially use like patch package and change it yourself. Like, so you're basically vendoring the library and taking ownership over that code. Or you can write your own library and use that or just like not use the abstraction at all, or maybe find a different library. So you've got a couple options there. When you have a built-in and blessed library that you're supposed to use for this particular solution, you're much more likely to work around it. You're just way more likely, especially when the built-in thing is built by a really smart team of developers who are working on it, they're getting paid to work on it, whatever it is, that it's like the, the official blessed thing. And so you're way more likely to work around it. You might file an issue on it. However, with React, you're using a library to do most things, right? And so if that library doesn't satisfy you, then you can look for something else because it's not the blessed thing. So you're not like, I have to use this thing. I'll go look for something else. And if you can't find it, then you're going to build it. It's just because of the way that React has structured things where we're just going to focus on the core and everybody else does everything else around us, it forces the users to innovate. And so rather than a team of really smart and awesome engineers who are trying to solve all of the problems for all the people, you instead just open it up to the entire world by accepting we're not going to be able to solve all of the problems for all the people, so you go solve your own problems, we'll solve this one. 
and for that reason, we see just a, a ton of innovation. Now, there are some libraries that kind of come out on top as like the natural. I don't know why anybody would use anything other than React Testing Library, for example, <laughs> and React Router, the same thing. Like it's just kind of become the de facto standard. But I think that those only became what they are because of the innovation in the rest of the community. And so that's one of the nice side effects. Now, the, the bad side effects there is, of course, that you do have to innovate as a community. Luckily, if you're just getting into React now, you don't really have to worry about that too much because like so many of the common problems have been solved already. But you won't have to worry about like, oh, there's this official blessed thing. I'm just going to work around it. Instead, you can innovate and they give you all of the right hooks into, no pun intended, <laughs> into React <laughs> so that you can build your own abstractions for whatever you're trying to do. Do you think that that's also possibly a detriment to it? Just in that I'm over here writing my React and you're over there writing your React. And if I come join your team, there's a pretty good chance that I don't know a lot of the stack that you're using. Mm -hmm. Whereas with something like Ember, I just jump in and pretty much go. Yeah, I've heard that a lot from like people like in the Ember community that like they can just jump to a different project. And yeah, I don't really have too much to say about that. It is the trade-off, I think. Yeah. Personally, I prefer the trade-off that React has made. Yeah, I, I agree. I like that phrasing of it. It's, it's a trade-off, but um, yeah, it's overall, I think that it's led to a lot of innovation and mm. things are kind of getting weeded out as and, and things are getting kind of promoted to being more top tier so that they're at least the concepts are being reused all over, which mm -hmm. is really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think this community is definitely innovative and I loved that explanation as to why, because I never really thought about that before. One thing that, you know, I've said on our other podcast about React is like, this goes for any popular tool though. It's popular for a reason. And you know, that means like the community is very large, which is wonderful, but just be aware if you're like new to React that it can be intimidating to break in sometimes because you do get a lot of people that are extremely knowledgeable, which is helpful, but also you're gonna get people that potentially like aren't as welcoming in the community. Mm. Like like the gatekeeping aspect, I felt mm. so much more in the React community than I did in the Vue community. And it's most likely just that React was around a lot longer and, and was more widely used. But yeah, just be aware, like there are trade-offs, but I wouldn't leave this community for another framework at this point in time. Like it's the benefits outweigh the costs in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a shame. There definitely is some gatekeeping and there, there are some toxic individuals in the community. And I don't want to excuse that. We just like, we need to improve. I think mm. one aspect of that problem, I think is because the React community is just so big, we get a like a percentage of the world as part of this community, mm. right? Unfortunately, a percent of the, of the world are a bunch of jerks. And so they end up joining every, there are jerks in every community just yeah. for that reason. There just happen to be more in React community because the React community is bigger. But again, I don't want to excuse the React community for that. And to be clear for folks outside the React community, this is not a super common problem, I think. Mm -hmm. For the most part, the React community is awesome. Yeah, and absolutely. I wouldn't say that React community is especially toxic, mm -hmm. but uh, but there is there is some there that we'd love your help <laughs> yeah. to join our community and make it better. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, it's teachers like you and other industry pioneers that are doing really great work and calling out the bad behavior and standing up like Danny Abramov has <laughs> done a really great job mm. on that front, kind of like making it known that like we've got work to do. But, you know, all those steps are steps forward. And it's just that the jerks scream louder. But that's to Ken's point mm. it's in every community. So don't let that be a deterrent to you. There are more good eggs than bad. Real quick, Nick. I think you had wanted to talk about Remix. So Remix has eliminated so many of the problems that I've had with React that I didn't realize were problems that I just kind of had accepted. That's what Hooks did for me, actually. Like, I remember when I first saw Hooks, I told Ryan Florence, I feel like Hooks are making React better when I thought React was as good as it could get. And Remix is kind of doing the same thing. So Remix is a framework that is built by Ryan Florence and Michael Jackson, the creators of React Router. And it is a phenomenal framework. It, it's still pre-release, but it is, let me put it this way. I'm building a really awesome React application right now for my website. And my website's like, it's an actual application. There are like user accounts and a bunch of really cool things I'm adding to it. It's not just like a developer portfolio. And I have never been more productive working with React than having Remix. I also 
have maybe like two calls of use state in the whole thing. I might have one use effect in there. Like it's a real app. I'm not just like throwing together some toy stuff. I'm also not using any CSS and JS. I, I can write regular CSS because what Remix does is it gives you nested routing and it allows you to have a lot of control over what is on the document at any given time. So you're in charge of rendering the entire document. You are rendering the HTML element. So like from the top down. So actually when I said earlier that updating the document title is a side effect, with Remix it doesn't have to be because you actually render the document title. You could put that in state and just render that which is really awesome. I have a class name on the HTML element that's actually in state. So it gives you control over the link tags that are on the page, the meta tags. You don't have to use something like React Helmet. And yeah, I, I could go on for way longer than we have. <laughs> we already probably talked too long. But if you haven't already looked at Remix, give it a really solid look because it is, it's changing the game. Uh, it really is. Um, and I think that you should, um, yeah, give it a, a solid look. Absolutely. I love that. Oh, and sorry, I should add also, they are not paying me to say this. So like, there's no <laughs> conflict of interest here. People often will be like, what are you, what are they paying you for that? No, they're not. I just tell people what I'm excited about naturally. And I've never been more excited about Remix or about building React applications mm -hmm. uh, since Remix came around. One more thing I wanted to, I guess, kind of plug for you is that Epic React course. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I will say as a paying user of that, I use that to learn hooks and learn how to do kind of more modern mm -hmm. React after doing a lot of class-based React before. And I will say also that your genius marketing of <laughs> the podcast you did with Chantastic on that, oh, I listened yeah. to all of those episodes before I bought the course. And it really like, it was just phenomenal being able to go through that, hear about your career and your life and what led you to create this course and such. And uh, and then it was just a very effective course uh, mm. to get me up and running with React. Yeah, well, our whole team you. bought it at Spotify and we had like an epic React like weekly meeting. Unfortunately, life gets crazy when you're working on building the Spotify desktop app. So we had to like commence or not commence, pause. <laughs> English is hard for me. But yeah, I can attest to that where like your course is definitely the most comprehensive one for all things React. It's not just intro to hooks. It's like from conception to deployment, including testing, right? So. Mm -hmm. And performance and yeah. Thank you. I'm glad that you mentioned that. And the podcast, people can find that at Epic React Dev slash podcast. But uh, yeah, I put a lot of stuff into this. I've been teaching React for a really long time. And yeah, it's pretty, pretty big thing. So thank you for, for your kind words. Of course. Well, we're really happy that you could join us today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you again. For those who don't know, Kent is like the nicest human. And I met you the first time at All Things Open in Raleigh, like a couple years ago before the panoramic happened. And he literally invited me to his house in Utah and his wonderful family made me waffles and I got to play with his kids. So if you're in Utah, let Kent know. He'll invite you over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Before we go, I do want to bring up one quick announcement. Emma, this is your last show with us for a while. It is my last show. I mean, I, man, I've been on JS Party for a couple years. Like, mm -hmm. it's been a while. So it's definitely bittersweet. I think I need to take time to, like, focus on my, you know, my mental and physical health. But, yeah, it's definitely sad because I have loved working with all of you for the past couple years. But what an episode yeah. to go out on. I mean, man, it's such a good time talking, honored. huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I easily speak for the entire JS Party community uh, that you are welcome back anytime. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to take you up on that. Hopefully this is just like a sabbatical and not like a see you never kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah, I'll still be dropping in the chats. Don't you worry. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again to Kent for joining us. And we've got the world's largest show notes full of amazing resources and humans for you to go check out. And with that, I hope you all listening have had a great day. A big thank you to Emma for playing a huge role in making JS Party awesome. You will be missed, my friend, and you're welcome back to the show anytime. If you appreciated Emma's contributions to JS Party, please let her know. She's Emma Bostian on Twitter. Send her some love, why don't you? JS Party is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by Fastly, Launch Darkly, and Linode. 
Next up on the pod, we are welcoming Amelia Wattenberger to the panel, announcing our mystery guests for the next Front End Feud and sharing a laundry list of productivity tips and tricks, including when and how to say no. Stay tuned for that episode. We'll have it ready for you next week. Are web apps fundamentally different from websites? I think you all know what side I'm on.